Hi people, welcome to the Bible Project Daily Podcast. And the project is to work through the whole Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We're two and a half years into a ten-year project. And I do hope you'll make the decision to make the study of the Bible part of the rhythm of your daily life also. And you can do that by just clicking on the subscribe button to wherever it is you get your podcasts from. If you're here for the first time, can I recommend you stick around at the end where I'll tell you of various ways in which you can connect not only with this ministry and this teaching, but also additional free resources that are available to you to access as well. Anyway, with that said, let's drop into the main text as we launch out today on a new section. For the next week or so, we'll be covering a couple of chapters of Matthew, chapters 8 and 9, which look at some of the miracles of Jesus. So bye for now, and I'll see you at the end. Okay, people, we're heading off on a new section today. And we're going to be considering over these next couple of chapters, how do we know that Jesus was actually the Messiah? And we're going to be, over the next week or two, we're going to be looking at a couple of chapters, Matthew's chapter 8 and 9, where Matthew argues the case by looking at some miracles. And the first one we're going to look at is this miracle of Jesus, where he heals a man with leprosy. But Matthew's perspective in approaching these miracles is interesting. You see, the Old Testament predicted that a Messiah was coming, and Christians, of course, claimed the name of Jesus as the fulfilment of that prophecy, and continue to do so down to this day. Jews, for the most part, even to this day, they still reject that Jesus Christ is the Messiah of the Old Testament writings, and most believe that they are still waiting for him or this figure to appear. So maybe what I would like to try and do today is ask us how do we know that Jesus Christ is the Messiah as promised in the Old Testament books of the Bible? Well, in a sense, that's the entire purpose of Matthew's account of the life of Jesus. It's to prove that supposition as factually correct. In Matthew's day, for the most part, the first century Jews living in Roman-occupied Palestine and beyond believed that the Messiah had yet to come. But they also believed that when he come, he would come as a conquering king. He would come in a way in which they would see him kick out the Romans and set up the Millennium Kingdom, a sort of Jewish kingdom and state. Now in his Gospel, one of the ways that Matthews tries to prove that this person, Jesus, is in fact the Messiah, foretold in the Old Testament, is by describing for them and for us today the miracles that Jesus performed. As a matter of fact, in the following couple of chapters of Matthew, which we're going to look at, uh, well, you see, we've now, haven't we, we've just come to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and these next two chapters, chapters 8 and 9, in Matthew's account, he is going to focus on giving us his eyewitness account of some of these miracles of Jesus. You see, as we've got so far into this gospel, we see in Matthew's narrative, first of all, he uses his own words, if you like, to set the scene. Then we have this long section where we have had the words of Jesus himself in the Sermon on the Mount, in which Jesus delivered his teaching on the kingdom of God and the principle of inner righteousness before God instead of just 
and outward just for show religious righteousness and rituals. But now we reach the point where Matthew's going back and giving a written account of the miracles of Jesus that he witnessed and he's doing that in chapters 8 and 9. And he's saying that these miracles are being given to A, demonstrate that he is the Messiah and also to demonstrate that he has the power of God within him. So we first heard Matthew speak, then we heard Jesus and his words and his message and now we will see how he demonstrates the truth and the power of that message by these miracles. The things that he's able to do by the power of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now you'll forgive me if for a moment I just play devil's advocate for a minute. But still the question remains is how do we know that these miracles prove that Jesus is the Messiah? I mean, at the end of the Sermon of the Mount, Jesus himself said that there are going to be people in the future and on the Day of Judgment who are going to say that they've done wonderful works in his name. Furthermore, we see in the Old Testament the magicians in Pharaoh's court, they seemed able to do miraculous things. So how can we say that these miracles here, described for us by Matthew in chapters 8 and 9, how do they prove that Jesus is the Messiah? So to answer that, we're going to have to look at them in some detail. And we're going to spend the next week or 10 days doing that. So let's begin today by looking at the beginning of Matthew chapter 8. But actually, just before that, let me give you an overview of these next chapters. If you like a bird's eye view of these chapters and these nine miracles that are going to be presented to us. Nine miracles that are actually put in groups of three. So the first group, there is a healing of a man with leprosy. That's chapter 8, verses 1 to 4. Then there is the healing of a centurion servant in verses chapter 8, verses 5 to 13. And then it continues in verses 14 to 17, where there's a healing of Peter's mother-in-law and also some mention of other miracles, although they're not described in any detail. Jesus then takes a moment to talk about the cost of discipleship, the cost that people will have if they choose to follow him. And then there follows a second group of three miracles. And these consist of the calming of the storm, the casting out of demons from a demon-possessed man, and the healing of a paralyzed man. And that's 8.23 through the first eight verses of chapter 9. Then after that, another third group of miracles will follow, which will consist of the healing of the ruler of the synagogue's daughter, swiftly followed with the healing of the woman with the problem of continual bleeding and then another healing of a demon-possessed man. Then finally two men are healed and a man suffering from mutism is also able to speak. So the miracles are going to come thick and fast over the next few days and we're going to look at each of these bearing in mind that they are written within three groups of three miracles but maybe we'll actually look at the miracles one at a time over the next number of days. So today we're going to look at the initial group of three and the first miracle within it. But let me just add before going into that in detail, this first group of three depicts Jesus's power over disease. The second group of three will portray his power over nature. And then finally, when we get to the third group, it will depict his authority, the authority to forgive sin, and in fact, his power over death itself. So today, we're just going to look at the first group of three, and let me open by reading to you from the beginning of chapter 8, beginning at verse 1. 
which tells us, when he came down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. So he's just come off the mountain, remember, having delivered the Sermon on the Mount to his disciples and the crowds that gathered also. So he comes down from the mountain, great multitudes follow him. And behold, a man with leprosy came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Then Jesus put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. Immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you tell no one, but go on your way and show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. So I'm going to stop right there at verse 4. I'm going to pause for a word of explanation about this. Obviously this is the healing of someone, a man with leprosy. And it would be good to talk about leprosy for a minute and what was significant about that disease at that time. You may also notice that during my discussions on leprosy, I will not be using the term leper that was used by many and has been used by many and is still used by some up to this day. I have some experience in the understanding of this disease. My father was for over 40 years, was director of a mission organization called the Leprosy Mission, which was formed in 1870 and reflected some of the views at that time when it was called the Mission to Lepers. My father at that time was part of the, of the decision-making process that changed that name to the Leprosy Mission as he saw the term leper around the world being used as a term of derision, as a term of not looking as to someone as an individual made in the likeness of God, but rather defining someone by the disease. And he felt that it was an offensive term in the same way that we would feel very many disability or even racial epithets are now unacceptable. But anyway, in the ancient world, as today, leprosy was one of the most terrible of diseases. So like I say, I myself have some understanding of the background to this disease. And in fact, my wife and myself travelled to countries like Pakistan and Nepal, where we reported back on the work of the leprosy mission in those countries, and we saw its effects on people firsthand. But in the ancient world, then, as today, leprosy was one of the most terrible diseases. It begins with little nodules, which become an ulcer, and then the ulcer suppurate and begins to develop a foul-smelling discharge. In some cases, the eyebrows droop, and the eyes become staring and unblinking. Now, this is due to nerve damage around the facial muscles, leading to eventual paralysis of the blink reflex and which then very quickly leads to blindness. The vocal cords can become ulcerated, the voice can become hoarse, the breath becomes wheezy and smells very bad. The hands and the feet often usually ulcerate. Slowly the sufferer becomes a mass of ulcerated skin and as the disease takes its course after a period of years it also leads to mental decline and ultimately death. But along that disease journey, leprosy through nerve damage causes the loss of sensation to the extremities of the bodies. The nerves are so affected that the muscles begin to waste as they're not receiving nerve signals anymore and the tendons contract until the hands are like claws and the feet are drawn in and thereafter follows the, the complete ulceration of the hands and the feet. And then that, of course, leads to the progressive loss of fingers and toes due to secondary infections until towards the end 
a whole hand or a whole foot may have just become an ulcerated stump. The duration of this terrible disease on average is anything for 20 to 30 years when left untreated, meaning that people suffer a kind of slow progressive death in which the individual in a way kind of dies inch by inch. But there's another problem that confounds the effects of leprosy and that was the fact that then as today it was a contagious disease and therefore the Mosaic law declared that someone with leprosy had to live apart from society. But how they did that and responded to that requirements was not done in a compassionate way. So this meant that those people at that time who had this terrible physical disease, they also had to deal with the huge social stigma attached to it as well. They could have no social contact or relationships with anybody else. As a matter of fact, the law that governed what someone with leprosy could do and not do was very long protracted. Biblical experts will tell us that at the time of Jesus, there were 61 different laws that regulated the conduct and contact of people with leprosy and other people. And other schools of thought were even more extreme in their approach to it. Generally, if people got too close, they had to cry out leper so that someone would not get too near to them. But for example, one rabbinic school taught that one shouldn't even buy food, even from a street where a person with leprosy had passed through recently. Another rabbi boasted that he flung stones at people with leprosy to keep them away. In reality, most people, they took to the heels at the first sight of someone that they thought might even just have leprosy, even if they just saw them at a distance. There has probably never been a disease that so separated one human being from another. However, the person with leprosy in this story, he comes right up to Jesus and he asks for help. He needs physical healing and he needs cleansing from being a social outcast as well. And Matthew chapter 8 tells us that he came and he worshipped Jesus, saying, Lord, if you are willing, make me clean. Now, by the way, the word translated worship here actually means a physical act. It means he actually knelt down and he offered himself in subservience and obedience to him. That isn't always what we would normally think of when we think of the word worship today. But here, Bible experts will say, the experts in the language used at that time to write these texts say this is definitely a description of a physical act here, a physical act representing a posture of heart towards the Lord and that he would have been kneeling before the Lord. At any rate, what we can tell is this man obviously believes totally that Jesus is Lord, and he believes that because of that the Lord can heal him. And the fact that he has leprosy means in a way he has even more faith than just normal people by breaking those boundaries in faith in the knowledge that Jesus can do something about it. So he asks the Lord to heal him and the text tells us that the Lord then put out his hand and touched him saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately the man with leprosy was cleansed. The remarkable thing about this story, and don't miss it friends, is that Jesus is seen to have touched him. This was perceived as a highly contagious disease. No one would go anywhere near these people, much less touch them. But Jesus touched him and he said, I will be clean. 
And it tells us that immediately he was healed of his physical disease. And of course, that means he would have immediately been cleansed from the social stigma that was attached to that disease by one simple touch from Jesus Christ. And look at what the text says next. Jesus then gives him a command. He says, See you tell no one, but rather go on your way and sow yourselves to the priests and offer the gift, as Moses has commanded, as a testimony to them. So why did Jesus heal this man with leprosy and then send him immediately to the priests at the temple? Some would perhaps argue that his motivation to heal was because he was a man of compassion. And there's certainly real truth in that. That is the motivation and that sometimes that is stated in this and other gospel accounts as the reason, the motivation for doing some particular miracles elsewhere in the gospel. It says he did it simply because he took pity on someone and wanted to relieve their suffering. So on one hand, there's no question that that's something of what's going on here. But he doesn't tell everyone to do what he told this man to do. He didn't go to say to the others, go to the temple and do what it says under the Mosaic law. Present yourself to the priest there as someone who is healed. Also telling him to take the gift and to show the priest that he had been healed and give the required gift of thanksgiving that the Mosaic law required. And to do that as a testimony to the fact that God had healed them. Now let me remind you that one of the official jobs of the priests at the temple was to determine if anyone was claiming to be Messiah, to determine if they actually were the Messiah. There was this thing called the messianic hope deep within the culture at that time. So what Jesus is doing here, well at least in part, is saying, yeah, go tell the priests you've been healed. But he knew that meant that they would come and investigate the man who had done the healing because by doing that, they would be investigating the claim that he had been miraculously healed, which was one of the signs of the Messiah to come. Now, as we get deeper into the Gospel of Matthew, this will become a significant point, and at which point I'll break off and discuss this more when we get to it. But at this juncture, I just want you to know that Jesus has healed and cleansed someone with leprosy. And at one and the same time, he has brought about a physical healing and combined it with freeing them from social isolation and stigma. Now, why did Jesus do that? How does that prove Jesus is the Messiah? Well, this miracle and the follow on from it doesn't go into a lot of detail, but the next one begins to unpack it a bit more. So I'll just keep going in the text, picking up at verses 5 through to 13, where it tells us, Now when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home, paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me, and I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. 
And I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go your way, and as you have believed, so let it be done. And his servant was indeed healed that very same hour. So this is the second miracle in this initial trilogy of miracles. But we'll take a break there, and we shall unpack this one in the next episode. Okay, friends, I do hope you find that interesting and helpful. I'd like to remind you, as I said at the beginning, a suggestion that if you're new or you've only been listening to a few of these, make the decision to make the study of the Bible part of the rhythm of your daily life and join on this amazing journey through the whole Bible. And you can do that by simply clicking on the subscribe button. That means wherever you get your podcasts from, You'll never miss another episode. You'll get a notification when new one's available. The plan generally is to do one a day, Monday to Friday, with occasional breaks for seasonal holidays and other things. And then there's a sister podcast where there's a compilation put on at the weekends a couple of times a month. Now, the place where the Bible Project podcast is hosted is thebibleproject.buzzsprout.com. And that's the place where you'll not only find additional information about this podcast, links to places where you can connect with my teaching. Places like the Facebook page, the YouTube channel, which is becoming the archive for all these audio files sorted in playlists related to book and to theme, which will become more and more important as the long list of podcasts get ever longer and we don't want to have to, people have to spend time sweeping and scrolling through a huge list of podcasts to find some teaching that they're particularly looking for. You'll be able to access it in theme and book form within the the YouTube channel. And also there, there'll be places where you can connect to my more formal structured discipleship courses, like ones on preaching and church history, which I'm uploading there at the moment and will continue to do so from time to time. So if you're not getting those links within the episode notes of your podcast provider, go find us on thebibleproject.buzzsprout.com and you'll find all those links there. But most of all, I'd just like to say welcome. And if you're not new, I'd like to say thank you. Thank you for joining along with me on this incredible time we're spending together studying the Bible. And I do hope you're benefiting as much from it as I am. And if you are benefiting, then I respectfully request that you consider uh, maybe sharing it or posting a link of it on those sort of places that you exist online, whether it be social media or other places, so that other people may be brought within the orbit of the gospel and the Bible, and they too can make a decision to make the study of the Bible part of the rhythm of their daily lives from here on in. 
And those of us who are doing that know what a wonderful benefit that it is. So thank you so much. There are thousands of us together around the world in over 160 countries involved in this journey together through the Bible. So I do hope I'll see you back here again tomorrow. Tomorrow it is for me anyway, but whatever day it happens to be for you, on the Bible Project Daily Podcast. Bye-bye for now.